sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. In case some of you haven't already noticed, this year is an election year in the United States. Did anyone realize that? If you didn't know that already, maybe you also didn't know what uh, Joy was talking about, about the winters being gray in Denmark, but... Um, yes, this year is an election year in the United States, and so this is a time that people can quickly get into some very heated debates about politics, or else they can tell some funny jokes about politicians, right? <laughs> well, I'm not going to introduce any uh, topic that might be for some heated debate, but I'll make fun of politicians. I hope that's okay. Um, as Lily Tomlin once said, that 98% of the adults in this country, she's speaking of the United States, are decent hard-working, honest Americans. It's the other lousy 2% that get all the publicity. But then we elected them, she says. <laughs> but is anyone currently watching the debates going on right now for the Democratic Party's nomination? Uh, maybe some of you are watching. We catch a few of the sound bites, and it makes you wonder, with all of that scrutiny, all of that media attention, all of the harassment and mudslinging, why is it that sensible people actually want to run for office? And especially that post as the President of the United States. Well, Harry Truman, once a President of the United States, was talking politics with a group of Yale students, and he was asked by the students, how do I start in politics, sir? The former President replied, you've already started. You're spending someone else's money, aren't you? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, a banker, an electrician, and a politician were each taking an IQ test. And one of the questions on this test was, what term best describes the problem when outflow exceeds the inflow? The banker responded, overdraft. The electrician responded, overload. And the politician scratched his head and said, what problem? <laughs> Well, hopefully the church is not about politics. Unfortunately, though, history will tell you that sometimes the church has gotten too closely related to politics. Sometimes within the church as well, it has been an issue of political movements within the church to gain places of leadership. Um, and really, politics shouldn't have any place in the church. Um, in our study of the book of Acts, of the Acts of the Apostles, we have seen how the leadership and the ministry of Jesus' 12 disciples has led to explosive numerical growth in the church. Well, uh, when you look at that growth, it's always attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is oftentimes a variety of things that the Holy Spirit uses to grow the church numerically. We've seen that sometimes it has been Peter's preaching where the Holy Spirit stirs people and then many are, are added to the church. Sometimes it's been the miracles that were performed, as you saw in the uh, chapter of chapter 4, where it was the activities of the church, it was their fellowship, it was how they shared their resources, that upon uh, the, the church doing all those things, it was growing in numbers. And last week we even saw how the hostility that the disciples faced uh, from the Jewish leaders was also one of the contributing factors to the, to the growth of the church. Well, today, we're going to see how there was something in the early church that they were actually failing at. They weren't doing it as they ought to have been doing it, and we'll look at some of the changes that they made to try to correct it. 
which then led to its further growth. Because in our study of the book of Acts, we'd like to model ourselves, FIBC now in the 21st century, um, we'd like to model our church after the early church. After all, we are still the same church that was started by the disciples of Jesus Christ way back then. Um, and we are the continuation then of what Jesus was doing to build his church. But we also have to be careful because sometimes we can build principles for the church on what may have simply been intended to be descriptive. So we're going to see a description of what happened as the church dealt with one of its failures. But we're also going to turn to some of the more instructive passages of scriptures to make sure that we don't misapply or that we don't principalize something that's simply descriptive in here. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along, maybe also in your own translation. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we, that is the twelve that were uh, of the disciples, that it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here we have the problem, how they solved it, and then also the result of them having solved the issue of one of the uh, groups that was being neglected. The Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews, were those who were among the Jews of the diaspora, meaning the spreading out of the Jews leaving the, Israel, uh, the land of Israel, spreading out in the known world then, who were then Greek-speaking rather than Hebrew-speaking, and they were complaining that their widows were being overlooked during the daily distribution of food. And caring for widows was a biblical mandate taken very seriously in Judaism. You'll find it in the Old Testament. And it was also then very common for the Jews of the diaspora to return to Jerusalem in their old age. As one of these uh, commentaries uh, that I have says, that there would be then a disproportionate number of Jewish widows who lived in Jerusalem. So the early church was doing their part to care for the needs of the widows among them. You might remember from Acts chapter 4, verse 34, how there were no needy persons among them in the church. Why? Because they would share the proceeds when they would sell their homes or their lands, and they would bring their proceeds to the apostles, and the apostles would then make sure that the money was being distributed among any believers as he had need, it says, chapter 4. So this distribution of finances in order to feed, uh, including the widows, 
was a ministry of the early church. And the word that's used here for ministry is what you perhaps have heard before, diakonia. Um, daily distribution, that word there is diakonia, meaning service or ministry. And as they were talking about, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, in other words, to diakonia, to serve. Um, instead, they would focus on the ministry of the word, diakonia of the word. And that word is also the same word that Jesus used to describe his ministry and the call he placed on his disciples. He said to his disciples when he was still with them that whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant, your, diacon, your, your deacon. Um, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve, diaconia again, and to give his life a ransom for, for many. And in John chapter 12, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, he said, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Anyone who serves me, him my father will honor. So what we see here is the believers taking Jesus' words very seriously. They were ministering to the widows. And um, because we can, uh, the words are used to, to describe ministry, we can gather that this must have been a financial type of an accountability uh, to ensure that practical needs like feeding were being met. But for some reason, unbeknownst to us, the disciples weren't feeding everyone. We don't know exactly why. We're not being told. Maybe there was some ingrained prejudice against the Hellenists. Maybe it was just a surface issue of a much greater grievance. We simply don't know. What we do surmise, though, from this is that within a body of believers, there is almost always the likelihood of some need not being met. See, God wants the church to be a community where real service, real ministry goes on. Look at Jesus, who revealed the heart of the Heavenly Father to all of us. Look at how he loved the unlovely, those who were untouchable, the lepers, the adulterous woman, the tax collectors, those who were hated in society. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He released those who were held captive by spiritual oppression. He invited people saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We see in Jesus' heart a compassion for people that they were, uh, what he said, um, looked like they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and therefore he had compassion on them. And just as he loved and served those who were given to his care, he said to his disciples, I have given you an example when he washed their feet, that you also should do just as I have done for you. So the early church was taking those words seriously, and we as the community of Christ followers today are also called to be like him, to do what Jesus did by serving, by ministering to others, and in so doing, we demonstrate the love of God, his heart. As the Ezos always put it, it's an easy way to remember it, is that we define God to the world, and we help the world to find God. That's our task as Christians. We define God to the world. When they want to know what does God look like, they should be able to look at his church. And when they want to know where God is, we should be able to point them to God. So we can expect, also among us, that there will be needy. And there will also be needy who will come to us because of their need. We'll have those who find it difficult to make ends meet financially. We'll have those who need prayer. 
maybe spiritual healing. We'll have those who are hungry that need to be fed. Those who need maybe encouragement or comfort or teaching. We'll have those who need to be pointed to God so that they can find their life's greatest longing and purpose. And it's up to the believers, it's up to us to serve the needs of the body. So what are the ministry opportunities around us today? Well, look around you. Everyone here represents some kind of a need that ought to be met by the rest of the, 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 rest of the body. And we have to ask ourselves, how can we serve today? So our church also is engaged in all kinds of ministry, and in no particular order, not, and it's not an exhaustive list. In the worship areas, we have those who are leading, we have those who are singing, those playing instruments, those preparing the Lord's Supper, ushering, audiovisual, counting the offering. We have in, in the education or discipleship ministries, we have teaching, assisting, caring for the babies, small group hosting, Bible study and teaching. We have fellowship ministries where it requires setup or cleanup or event planning, even communicating the event, even the directory, administration, there are clerical duties, membership role, keeping the finances, pastoral staff concerns, facilities, the list goes on. In fact, I'll tell you what is the rest of the list. <laughs> the prayer ministries, leading prayer meetings for ladies or men or Sundays, communicating church-wide prayer requests, and of course, there's outreach and missions. Supporting the missionaries, seeking opportunities to serve our community. Maybe it's advertising so people know how to find the church. Even just running the website so people can know how to find where we are. And many of those ministries, even today, are lacking some of the people to ensure that no needs are going unmet. Well, the early church was serving as Jesus would serve. Now, unfortunately, the first sign of their failure was they were missing out on the needs of the widows among the Hellenists. So how did they then change this problem into a potential? Well, as we read, the 12 proposed to the body to choose seven men to attend specifically to that need so that the 12 could attend to prayer and the ministry of the word. They simply summoned all the believers together and said, here's what we propose to do because it, would be, it wouldn't be right. It would be unpleasant or unfitting if we were to try to serve those tables and then neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. So we'll focus on or we'll continue steadfastly with the ministry of prayer and of the word. And then you choose seven rightly qualified believers from among you to serve the tables in this daily distribution. And so the body did exactly that, choosing seven men whom the apostles then appointed to serve in this ministry. Now, they had to meet certain qualifications that were necessary. We see them in, in here. They had to be men of good repute, meaning known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And the men that were chosen all seemed to have Hellenistic names. Um, not sure exactly why they chose only Greek-speaking Jews, but perhaps to make sure that the Hellenist widows knew that they weren't uh, going to be overlooked. Um, we have Stephen, who will now feature prominently in this next section of Acts, starting next week. And then we have Philip, who is the next one to be featured prominently. And then five others, which nothing else is said about them, except for Nicholas, that he was a proselyte from Antioch. In other words, that he became first a Jew before he became a Christian. He wasn't a Jew in the first place. And maybe it's only mentioned that he was a proselyte from Antioch, because then Antioch becomes a city that's featured next in the book of Acts. So... 
These seven who were chosen by the people were presented to the apostles who then prayed and then laid their hands on them. Now, if you've never been in church before or if you don't know what this expression means, um, you know, sometimes people say, you know, when, when the, uh, the young boy comes to the door and the father of the daughter uh, says to the young boy, don't you dare lay a hand on my daughter, right? That's not the laying of hands we mean here, okay? Um, the laying on of hands in this manner harks back to the practice seen in the Old Testament. You'll find um, Jacob um, pronouncing a blessing over his grandsons. Or perhaps you lay hands on someone when you're commissioning them because they're called to serve God as Eliezer the priest did over Joshua, who was Moses' successor. But so these seven were already identified as being filled with the Spirit. This was not a laying on of the hands to endow them with the gift of the Spirit. They were already Spirit-filled. It was a gesture setting them apart for this appointment to be responsible for the daily distribution from here on. And here's where we have to be careful about principalizing this event in the church that Luke is simply describing in his account of the apostles and how the church grew and one of the problems that they faced. Because if we begin to say that this is how church ministers should be sought after and appointed, then it's difficult for us to draw the line exactly which parts of it do we have to apply today. See, some have contended that this passage of Scripture is where deacons are the first time that you see them being appointed as deacons. And they say that, well, that's because you have um, the word diaconia so many times, and that these, sevens were, the, these seven men were the first deacons of the church. However, let's not forget that the apostles and their diaconia of the word is also a diaconia. Their ministry was also one of serving like a deacon, I guess, if you would have to insist. And others would say, well, these deacons or these seven people later became elders of the church. Why would they say that? Well, because later on, as finances are gathered and sent to the church in Jerusalem, the finances were sent to the elders. You'll see that in chapter 11. So do these then deacons later become elders? Well, again, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's prescriptive for us today. Because where do you draw the line? Would you then say that anyone who ministers in the church has to be called up and we have to lay hands on them. And anyone who serves a church has to be male. And we can only have seven of them to serve the church. And, well, they have to have Hellenistic names because these seven also did. And they're only appointed to handle money or finances because that's what these ones were. Well, you see, where, you, where do you draw the line of how much of this is what, the, what every church should do for always. So let's be careful and not try to imitate too much of what they're saying, but I think we can surmise at least that if we are not currently engaged in serving the body somehow, any one of us, then there's going to be some ministry around us that's going unmet. That it ought to be the believers within the body that meet the needs of the body. And that those ministries need to be the responsibility of qualified Christian believers. That's how the church turned this problem into a potential, by appointing the right people at the time and the right number of people at the time to be responsible for ensuring that the church was doing what God wanted it to be doing at the time. Now, is it necessary that a person who serves a church is a believer? I mean, isn't it possible, one could say, 
that you could hire a person to do Christian ministry. You hire a musician, have them play the piano. You hire someone to clean the church uh, when it's time to clean the church. Uh, you hire someone to take care of the babies in the nursery. Technically, you could pay an unbeliever to do the work of the ministry. But it is the belief in Jesus Christ that makes it possible for a person to do the work of the ministry with the right condition of their heart. You see, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we already know that our salvation has been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. Our eternity in heaven is secured, not by anything we have done, not by anything we will do, but by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Right? That is the gospel. That his cross has paid it all. So those of us who serve Christ, we don't have as a motive to earn our salvation. We don't have as a motive to try to win favor with God. We already have his favor. And it is only the believers that have that confidence that we serve his body because we simply desire to demonstrate our love for Jesus Christ and his body. Christ's love for us and his love for others is what compels us to love others. His servanthood, as an example, compels us to serve as his hands and feet. And his glory is the only motive we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Emerson was wise enough to quote on leadership that there is no limit to what can be accomplished if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And I would say, well, how much more true that is when Christ's servants are only interested that Christ receives the credit. There's no limit to what we can do. Well, is it possible for an unbeliever then to be responsible for a church ministry? Yes, you can give that responsibility, but it is the Spirit of God who makes it possible to do it with the spiritual gift that's been provided. Only the believers have the endowment of the Holy Spirit that's specifically tailored to what the Holy Spirit wants us to do in, his, in the body of Christ. Is it possible for an unbeliever to have the experience that's necessary to perform a task in Christian ministry? Sure, you can bring on an accountant to do the finances of the, of the church. But it's the presence of God in a believer's life that transforms that task to become a sacred activity. The believer who's engaged in service, whether that believer is paid as an employee or unpaid as a volunteer, serves God. And therefore, that ministry that they do is sanctified as an act of worship. And all of you who are believers working in jobs that are outside the church, in other words, a secular job, you too sanctify that work by doing it as unto the Lord. It is your act of worship in whatever employment you have when you're doing it as unto the Lord and doing it for his glory. And so also within the church, when those of us who are believers are serving the church, let me quote Oswald Chambers. He says, it requires the inspiration of God to go through drudgery with the light of God upon it. Some people will do a certain thing and the way in which they do it hallows that thing forever afterwards. It may be the most commonplace thing, but after we have seen them do it, it becomes different. When the Lord does a thing through us, he always transfigures it. So those qualifications that are needed to serve in the ministry of the church ought to be filled by those who are filled with faith and those who are filled by the Holy Spirit. 
And just as those would be appointed by the church, well, they should be known to be faithful and filled of a good reputation. And trust is something that's built over time, right? That you've seen in people their faithfulness and the fact that they're spirit-filled, so you ask them to fill that particular need. And if you here today are a spirit-filled believer and not currently engaged in serving the body somehow, then you can be certain there is some ministry that's lacking in something. And you're the one that's being asked to fill that lack. God has you here for a reason. Seek him to discover how you can contribute to the body. Don't wait to be asked, asked, but begin asking what needs there are. And sometimes there are needs that are already being met, but by so few that simply adding one or two additional people to meet that need would make it joyful for everyone who's doing it. And there are needs specially suitable to the resources that you can offer of time or talent or experience or passion or gifting. And perhaps some of you have already heard that the, sometimes the way that you discover what area of ministry you should fill is by understanding your shape. You know, the S-H-A-P-E, maybe some of you have heard that, some of you haven't, but you're basically looking at what is your spiritual gift. You know, what have you been specially endowed with by the Holy Spirit? Because you'll find um, that the Holy Spirit uh, endows people differently, uh, some for encouraging, some for service, some for administration. Uh, the H in that would be for your heart. What is your passion? Uh, what are you emotionally zealous about regarding certain needs or tasks or seeing a certain virtue uh, in, within the church? The A would be for your abilities. Uh, all of us have different abilities, some uh, which uh, the things that we're capable of naturally, uh, that all of us are born with abilities. Some can have also spent the time training our abilities to become highly skilled, uh, for example, our musical ear or finger dexterity. Um, it was Henry Ford uh, who was asked the question, who ought to be the boss? And he says, well, who ought to be the boss is like asking who ought to be the tenor in the quartet? Well, obviously, the man who can sing tenor, he said, right? And so all of us have some abilities we can share. And then the P would be for our personality, that both introverts and extroverts, yes, we're all uh, made by God. Um, some of us would prefer to be not on stage in front of everyone. Uh, others uh, are happy to be um, on stage, uh, standing up in front of others. Um, and then E would be your experience. Uh, let's be careful, though not to organize a church based on how the world's businesses are organized. But God doesn't waste an experience. Whatever we learn in our course of life is something that God can also use within the church. Um, we gain wisdom. We sharpen our abilities sometimes in what we do out in the world. Uh, and then some of those things can be brought into what we do in the church. Um, many of you don't know this, but I got my uh, undergraduate degree in accounting. And it's been fun to see how the Lord then uses my accounting uh, in church ministry. And today I've been serving a few years now uh, as the team leader of the IBC's finance team as well. I would never have guessed that that's how God would use my accounting degree, uh, that he would use it within the church and within the convention at large. I remember also all those times I was taking piano lessons because my mom forced me to take piano lessons. And I had to learn all of those scales. But little did I know that God would use the musical abilities and all those hours of piano lessons in ministry someday. Uh, I, I, I later on moved into trumpet and bass and other things, but still, um, little did I know that those experiences 
would be used by God. So let me also caution you on this, that God can also call us to meet a need where we think we're the least able, the least equipped, or the least experienced, right? Because sometimes it's our obedience to that calling that we suddenly discover that this is the place he's been equipping us for all this time, all right? So it may not be the first thing you think of in terms of your shape. Sometimes you're called to minister to an area where you discover what your shape really is. Now, um, let's go to the last point here where what happens then next? We've seen the problem that they faced. We've seen how God chose to address that problem. And then the result is that the word of God spread and the numbers of the church increased greatly that even priests became believers. And if you remember, some of those priests were those that were opposing the disciples at the time. They were the council that was gathered to try to stifle the disciples. It shouldn't surprise us though, because now that the apostles were able to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, the word of God spread. And it shouldn't surprise us that now that the responsibility of the daily distribution of food was given to qualified believers, that the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. Because people were now hearing the word of God and they were seeing it alive in practical ways. And as an added bonus, even the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So now I'd like us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 for us to understand this principle here because it is specifically taught in Ephesians about how the church ought to be, how the needs in the church ought to be met by those who are the believers in the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'll just begin reading um, in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, Paul writes to the Ephesians, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes on to, to, to support that statement he was saying there in verse 7, and go down to verse 11 where he now says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him or into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see that specific teaching there that Paul is saying, using the idea of a building here, that God is building people and putting into his church the apostles and prophets, the evangelists and shepherds and teachers, to do the equipping so that the saints, the members of the body, can do the work of the ministry. And too often we get it all reversed, that the, that the ministers or the, the paid professionals are the ones that we pay to do the work of the ministry. But that's not how the body grows. And Christ wants his body to be mature in him, for us to grow up into him who's the head that is the Christ, so that the equipping is done by those who are 
doing the ministry of the word, and that the work of the ministry then is being done by the members of the body. And for the body to be healthy and maturing, then each part has to function correctly. Each part has to be doing its work. It's a very simple principle for us to, to follow of the body, the physical body, and the spiritual body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul develops that an analogy further, saying there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. By the way, that's diakonia again. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. And then he also goes on to say that the part of the body shouldn't say, well, since I'm not that particular part, then I don't belong. Right? But every part, there's a variety of parts, because if you, don't, if you have only ears, then how will the smelling happen? Right? So when the body of believers is functioning correctly, it will be meeting the needs that are present in the body, and it will grow so that it will fulfill God's purposes for the church. So how is then the body of Christ expressed at FIBC being hindered from growth because although you are qualified, you're not being responsible for a ministry yet? That's a question you have to ask. How is this body hindered from its growth? Because although you're qualified, you're not doing anything in ministry yet. Because by being responsible for ministry means that someone else can also be freed up to serve in a ministry that they're qualified for. And in our church, just in case for those of you that don't already know this, the structure is uh, not very complicated. We have pastors, elders if needed, that are elected by the members. The pastor's responsibility, as outlined in our constitution, is the spiritual welfare of the members, and we serve as shepherds and leaders of the church. Elders, if they are needed and if they are available, they would assist the pastors with the pastoral care duties, providing spiritual guidance to the church. And those who are elected as either pastor or elder to that office must meet the requirements of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, which describes the qualifications of an overseer, episkopos, and Titus, chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, which describes the qualifications of an elder, presbuteros. And since those passages regarding the qualifications of an overseer or elder refer to men and use male pronouns, then we only, or we can only, elect men to those offices. Other than the pastors and elders, we also have the ministry team coordinators. And those are elected by the members to serve as leaders of the different ministry teams that are assigned to them. And as I mentioned to many of those uh, teams before, each of those teams are related to the five areas that we believe are the purposes of the church. Worship, fellowship, evangelism, discipleship, which is Christian education, and service or ministry, the practical needs of the community around us. And then to support those purposes, we have ministry teams related to prayer and administration. And together with the pastors and elders, your ministry team coordinators form the church council. And as a council, we can make recommendations to you, the members, of the decisions that have to be made so that you can take those decisions. And let me just let you be aware of who our coordinators are at this time. I'm just going to call them out now, uh, not necessarily to, to give them any particular recognition, uh, but simply to say that if you are looking for a place to serve, you'll know who to ask. We have Elia Montgomery. He's in the back there right now, but he, before he was in the front on worship ministries. We have Cindy Nipper up here in the front right now uh, on the fellowship ministries. We have Yvonne Henriksen. Yvonne, where are you? Oh, she's currently teaching the kids right now. 
Uh, we have Ewan Clugston. He's now way in the back over there and responsible. Oh, I forgot to mention that Yvonne is responsible for the outreach and evangelism ministries. Ewan is for those service or ministry uh, to the community ministries. We have Carrie Smoke. Carrie, raise your hand. Uh, on the prayer ministries, we have Yerun back there on admin or ad administrative ministries. Um, and the pastors then regarding discipleship, uh, we're more directly coordinating those. And let me just say this too that your council members are very faithful servants. It is not a burden for us pastors to come to council meetings. You know, perhaps you've heard sometimes that with the church politics and all those things, the pastors will dread the council meetings. We don't dread the council meetings. Your council members have been faithful. They've been selfless. Um, it hasn't always been that way, but praise God it is that way now. Um, so these are the ones you need to meet. These are the ones you need to make sure that you approach uh, when you're wondering, how else can I serve? And here's what you need to ask and pray to the Lord. Am I currently serving your body in the function that you want me to be in? Take a moment to pray that prayer. Say to the Lord, you know my heart and my intentions. Am I doing it with the right motive and the right attitude? And ask the Lord, are there any needs that I should be made aware of? I love the song by Casting Crowns. If we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? And if we are the body, why aren't his feet going? Why is his love not showing them there's a way? There is a way. Now, if you're currently serving on a team and actively doing your part in the body, you know, the, the typical 20% who does 80% of the work, you might be thinking, oh, good, this sermon is for someone else. It's not for me, right? But I think you should still, all of us should still ask ourselves, am I in the right place? Or is there another place, perhaps, that I could serve in? And am I doing everything I should be doing? Or could there be more? Or could there be something that I could do better? And we should ask ourselves, am I equipping others by delegating and recruiting others? so that they also have an opportunity to serve in this particular area. So you're not off the hook, those of you who already are serving in very different places. But this structure has worked well for the church so far because we've also had very faithful members, thankfully. So if the needs arise and we're made aware of them and they require some way of meeting them, then let's follow the example of the early church to the extent that we too will be led by the Holy Spirit we too will make adjustments as needed so that we can better meet the needs through the rightly appointed members that we have. And I think to that extent, we can try to be just like the early church because God's church will grow in God's way. And what is God's way? That believers in the body serve the needs within the body. So I started today with some things about politics. Let me just close as well. A definition of politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Hopefully, that's not the definition of the way the church is. That ought to be the farthest thing from the reality within the church. And Lord willing, we'll grow this church like he wants it to grow. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, as we bow before you, some of these questions we've asked are convicting. Um,
some of the truth that we've learned about is uh, inspiring and revealing. And as we open up our hearts to you, Lord, we pray that we would not look at all like the world, but that we would look like Christ, that we would serve like he does, that we would love others genuinely as he does. And I pray specifically, or we pray specifically for our church, FIBC here in Copenhagen. We pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would move among us in such a way as it did in the early church. Where though there may be needs going unmet and though there may be um, faults among us, that we would use your means and we would respond to your Holy Spirit to meet those needs the way you want us to meet them. And Lord, that we would grow, that we would become mature in Christ, that we wouldn't be swayed by false doctrine that's all around us. And Lord, I pray as well that we would have true hearts that are humble, uh, servant-like, that there wouldn't be politics within our church, uh, fighting for positions, um, trying to become leaders to lord it over others, uh, trying to meet our own personal needs or personal agenda. But Lord, help us, we pray to be humble servants, ready to serve the needs that you make us aware of around us so that you may receive all the glory and honor and praise that you deserve. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.